Greetings, Contractarians. I am Patrick Smith. Welcome back to Disenthrall. Today, we are going to respond to a viewer-submitted question. We are going to do a deep dive into what a contract is from a libertarian perspective, what contracts aren't, the parts of contracts, and we're not just going to do it with me. Oh, no. We're going to do it with one of the best minds in this field. He has a plan, she has a plan, and you get to pay for it regardless. The best way to get someone motivated is to stand for something strongly, deeply, passionately. Subscribe to Disenthrall. Do as you're told. What? My guest today, Ladies and gentlemen, is the Stefan Kinsella. Welcome to the show, Stefan. Thank you very much. So, Stefan Kinsella is an intellectual property attorney and libertarian writer from Houston, Texas. This is his second appearance on the show here at Disenthrall. It's awesome to have him back. Last time we talked about uh, an intellectual property controversy. Uh, he is he is founder and director of the Center for Study of Innovative Freedom, a member of the editorial board of Reason Papers, a member of the editorial advisory board of the Molinary Review, a member of the advisory board of the Creative Common Law Project. He has published numerous articles as well as the influential book Against Intellectual Property, and he has a new book coming out this month, maybe even today, called International Investment, Political Risk, and Dispute Resolution, being published by the Oxford university press so man it's great to have you back like just being able to do a deep dive into a into a topic i know you have put a lot of thought and uh, and have a lot of experience talking about in uh, it's an honor so thanks for returning to the show uh, i'm glad to do it and uh I, probably the two main areas i talk about would be intellectual property and rights theory which you know are to most people's minds, two of the most boring and eye-glazing topics you could think of. So contracts to me is a little bit sexier. So I like to talk about contracts because it's it's actually kind of interesting. And most people have some idea of what contracts are, although they're they're not always correct. And I don't like to say I'm from Houston, by the way, because I just happen to live here. There you go. All right. That's fair enough. Fair enough. Uh <laughs> I don't consider myself to be a Texan, but uh, just a citizen of the world, man. Not even an American. Yeah. Screw collectivism. We don't need those labels. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So a little housekeeping just for the people joining the stream now. Good to see you guys, uh, Lena. Hey, my wife, guys, my wife is actually in the comments of a stream. This is her second time ever. So say hello to Lena Smith. She's in the comments. Uh, Mark Maresca, good to see you. Kurt, good to see you. A little housekeeping here. I'm going to throw this up on the top of the screen. If you'd like to do Super Chats, because we have people that enjoy submitting questions and doing Super Chats to do so, I appreciate your support. I want to make sure you're aware. If you do a Super Chat through YouTube, Google gets 30%. So if you're one of the people that make donations, don't buy Google a steak. I mean, I'm not going to tell you not to if that's what you want to do, but the link at the top of the stream, uh, at the screen, streamlabs.com slash disenthrallme. That will allow you to do the exact same thing. It'll get you the your question on the screen. It'll allow you to donate to the, the channel to support us, but it doesn't give Google their bit. So housekeeping out of the way, contracts. I would like to, I guess, start with definitions. We should always lead with definitions. So I'm going to hide us for a second. 
And we're going to pull up Wikipedia, which is not always a, a, a good resource, but it'll at least maybe set a foundation for us to start saying, well, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. So uh, according to sure. Wikipedia, a contract is a legally binding agreement that recognizes and governs the rights and duties of the parties to the agreement. A contract is legally enforceable because it meets the requirements and approval of the law. An agreement typically involves the exchange of goods, services, money, or promises of any of those. In the event of a breach of contract, the law awards the injured party access to legal remedies, such as damages and cancellation. And uh, well, it, it also lays out here in this definition um, the parts of a contract, but I want to save that for maybe the, the next discussion. So in terms right. of the definition of what is a contract, how do you think that is? I think uh, from a legal perspective, that's not bad. Um, um, and, and I'm sure in this, in this show, we will discuss the, what I think would be the proper libertarian perspective on it and the legal perspective. So those are two different things because the, um, the legal practice diverges somewhat from the way I think that uh, a private law society or a private law order in a libertarian world would, would, would treat it. Um, so I think that's not bad. They're taking the Western conventional approach to contracts, which is more the common law approach. The other big system in the world is the civil law, the European system, the Napoleonic system, which is not that different in substance, but some of the terms are different. So you might call a uh, a contract in a civil law country like um, France or even Louisiana here in the U.S. Um, you you might call it a conventional obligation. But if you think of the word convention, that just means well, most people mean a convention is like a habit or. Um, uh, a custom, but if you think about it, sometimes it's used in international law as a as a as a synonym for the word treaty. Like you can have a convention for the sale of goods or things like that. So a conventional obligation is what uh, is the analog of contracts in the common law, but they're both very similar in how they work. Uh, there are some differences. The common law system that you and I are mostly used to. Uh, the tip, the simplified way to say it is that a contract, which is, as you say, a binding agreement or an enforceable agreement, um, is formed when there's an offer and an acceptance. Okay, so offer plus acceptance equals binding contract. But the offer has to be d definite enough and have certain terms that are accepted by someone accepting the offer either by their action or by their words. So that's typically what contracts are and what people, how people think of them. Okay. Real quick. Cause this is epic. Peaceful, easy feeling just donated a hundred dollars to the show in a super chat. He says best wishes in this tough moment to both to both peaceful individuals and congratulations for Anarchast peace, love and good health, peaceful, easy feeling. You're always blowing it away with the donations. Thank you for, for that. I really, really, really appreciate it. And my family is doing great right now. We are quite comfortable. Uh, we have, we went on lockdown two weeks ago. So before any of this craziness happened, we bought a bunch of food. And so we're, we're quite chill. And how are you doing right now, Stefan? We're doing fine. We're weathering the storm. No problems. Good, good. Okay. So I, I mean, I, I wanted to start with Wikipedia. I kind of disagree with it because it, it, it seems to uh, the thing that I don't like about it is it has a lot of appeals to government determining what is and isn't a valid one. Um, 
Uh, it, but it does make reference later to oral contracts. So I think as part of defining what a contract is, wouldn't it just be to yep. say an agreement that like I that you consent to and the the medium of like a paper or written contract is just um, an attempt to publishize or to um, codify or to solidify in a, at a moment in time evidence of an agreement, right? Yeah, and most people don't think of it this way, even most lawyers. If you want, let, let me start with my view of contracts as a libertarian, and then we can maybe talk about how that borrows from or is um, is held up by the current legal system. Because, and a couple of little matters that are that sound like petty fogging most of the time, like when you correct someone, but since we're talking a deep dive, so um, w people will say oral or verbal. Now, Technically speaking, the word verbal just means using words, right? So verbal does not mean – so verbal would include written contracts. You follow me? Yes. So a written contract is verbal because it has words, and most oral contracts are also verbal because they're orally spoken, but they include words. Um, but some contracts are not – verbal at all like if 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 i don't speak a language and you don't speak a language and i hand you a, a piece of a, an apple and point to your orange and we we just trade we both understand so there's communication but there's not verbal so contracts can be merely verbal or they can be merely oral or they don't even but they never have to be written except by law for certain things like immovable property or real property like land you have to have those contracts have to be in writing to be valid and certain things like copyright assignments but generally speaking a lot of contracts can be just done as long as you have a representation of the wills of the parties they communicate with with each other um a lot of times you'll hear people say like libertarians will say something like the non-aggression principle it means that you can't initiate violence and that includes fraud and contract breach, something like that. So they just throw these things in there. Now, I think the mistake with that formulation is, is that the non-aggression principle is not really a summary of all of libertarianism. It's just like a it's like a stand-in for one aspect of it, like the interpersonal violence part. Um, when you just start cramming things into it, like violence and contract, I think that's a problem. Uh, and you'll hear people justify intellectual property, for example, based upon contract. Uh, or you'll even hear Bitcoin uh, enthusiasts talk about how there's going to be smart contracts. And you'll notice they almost never define what they mean by contract. It's just a smart contract, something that automatically happens, but it's not clear why that's a contract. Um, so to my mind, as a libertarian, you think about this fundamentally. And by the way, I believe that Murray Rothbard and a guy named Bill Evers, Williamson Evers, in the 1970s came up with a kind of a radically new approach to contract law that was different than the way the legal profession and the government courts and scholars have looked at it. And I think it's revolutionary and it's underappreciated. And my own view is built upon theirs and slightly extends it a little bit because I'm a I'm a lawyer and they were like historians and economists and they only knew so much about the legal nuances. But what they did was just, I think, incredible. And I think this is the solid right way to look at contracts. Um, so from a libertarian point of view, we live in a world of scarce resources and we have the possibility of conflict. When we want to perform actions, we need to employ these scarce resources when we act. And by their nature, only I or you can use these things at a time. 
And therefore, if another person wants to use this resource that I'm using, including my body, then there could be conflict. So there's a potential for conflict, physical, violent, grappling conflict. That's the whole purpose of property rights is to assign ownership rights to these resources so that we can use them peacefully and in prosperity and cooperatively together and and avoid trampling on each other's rights and be secure in our own rights. This is the kind of the background of the entire libertarian ethic. And the libertarians believe that you should very consistently respect property rights assigned according to some simple, simple rules. One of them is if there's a resource that someone, two or more people dispute, we have to decide who owns that resource. Okay. So the first thing we ask is who between these two people, who owned it first? Who started using it first? Okay, so earlier use beats later use because later use is what a thief is. A thief is someone who comes along later and takes your stuff from you. So the earlier guy has a better claim to it. But another way would be contractual title transfer. This is the way Rothbard and Evers would look at it. So if between you and me, you owned it first, but then you gave it to me by contract, and that would include gift. It would include a gift or a sale, anything that's consensual. As long as I transfer the title to you, I gave my ownership to you. Now you have a better claim than me. And because I had a better claim than anyone else in the world, I have a better claim than anyone else in the world. This is how it works. These are basically the roots of all libertarian law. So if you think about it like this, contract is really just the outcome of the fact that owners of scarce resources are the ones that have the right to decide what to do with them, right? So if I own my body, that means that there can't be slavery because it means that a slave owner can't tell me what to do because I'm the one who gets to decide whether he can whip me or shoot me or kidnap me or whatever. I'm the one who gets to decide that, not him, right? Um, but what that means is that if I own a resource, whether it's a car or a piece of land or my body, as the owner, as the property owner, as you see, this is why property is key and contracts flow from this. Property is not based upon contract, but contract is based upon property. In this way, if I own a resource, I do have the right to prevent other people from using it. That's the right of exclusion. But I also have the right to permit them to use it. That's why there's a difference between rape and consensual sex. That's why there's a difference between me using an Avis rental car and me stealing someone's car. Right. I'm using Avis's car with their permission. Or if I go to a hotel room, I'm not a squatter or a trespasser. I am actually renting the room from them. I'm, I have a lease or a temporary use right. Uh, or if I invite a dinner guest to my house, they're not a burglar. They're it, they're uh, they're an invitee. Right. They, they have what's called a license. That's where the word license arises. Um, and so. By virtue of having an ownership right in a resource, by having a property right in a resource, the owner has the ability and the, and the power to deny permission or to grant permission. Now, the granting of permission can be complete and final and immediate, or it can be temporary and conditioned and partial, right? So I might loan you my coffee maker for a day, or I might loan you my car for a day, or I might give you my car as a gift, or I might give it to you in a year from now with a contract, or I might sell it to you in a year with a contract. So there are different things you can do as the owner. You can express your will to 
relinquish partially, completely, temporarily, permanently, immediately, or conditioned in some event in the future. And this is what contracts are. So contracts are just the expressed will of an owner of a resource about when and how someone else gets to use it. So that's what contracts are. Contracts are basically um, the divesting of your ownership of your resource. And the reason, in my view, that you have the right to do that is because you have the right to abandon property. You have the right to abandon it because you acquired it. And if you can acquire something either by homesteading it or by contract from some, some previous owner, then you can undo that and just stop intending to own it or even die or whatever whatever it takes. But the point is you can stop owning a resource at a certain point in time. That's abandonment, which is a type of contract in a sense, except you're kind of giving it back to the world and you're making this property unowned again and someone else can homestead it. But instead of doing that, you're abandoning it, so to speak, in favor of a given person, which is what a contractual title uh, transfer would be. So this is how I look at contracts. And the difference between this view and the conventional view is that the conventional view, as you read, and as the civil law states, is that it, it views contracts as giving rise to binding promises or enforceable obligations or agreements or promises. And then what the government, so what the, what the state courts say is this. Okay, so I have a promise with you, which if it meets a certain formal criteria, offer and acceptance and consent and, and consideration is another one the common law requires that you have to give something in exchange because they think it has to be an exchange of something, even if it's not of equal value. Like they sort of recognize the kind of Austrian point that you can't have equal values. Okay, you'll see something if you look it up. Uh, you have to have consideration for a contract, even if it's a mere peppercorn. They say that a mere peppercorn, which means that you can give me $10,000 car and I can pay for it with a mere peppercorn, like a, a penny. Or And this is why you'll see in a lot of contracts, it'll say in exchange, I give you a dollar or $10. Even if you don't actually hand it over, they're trying to fulfill the formality requirements that the common law added on to this idea that a contract has to be an exchange. Which, of course, is not true in libertarian theory and even in the legal theory because you could have a unilateral or a donative – you could have a donation or a gift, which is not – there's no consideration for a gift. So from our point of view, it's all unified. The owner has the right to get rid of this property either by abandoning it to the world, by destroying it. If you want to destroy it, that's called abuse in the law, abuse. Um, that's why the word usufruct is used in the civil law. Usus, fructus, and abusus. Property has three three parts. Usus, fructus, and abusus. Usus is the right to use it. Fructus is the right to the fruits, the civil fruits, which would be interest on money, or the actual fruits, which would be fruits from a tree, or like a cow giving birth to a calf, which is the fruits. You, you own the cow, you own the calf. You own the apple tree, you own the apples. You own the money, you own the interest. You own the fruits, uses fructus, and abuses would be the right to destroy. Um, so, be so before we get too far ahead, I, I want to call out to a couple things that you said. So long-term viewers of this channel would be very familiar with two things that you just kind of heard him allude, allude to. And that's because uh, Kinsella is one of the people is the person that taught me these things. When I say what um, when I say what are property rights and I say that uh, owning something is the right to exclude others from the use of it. I got that from this guy right here, and that is the best definition yeah. of ownership I've ever found. Uh, so kudos to you on that. Um, 
And uh, and the second thing that I talk about frequently on this channel is, uh, I, and I don't even know what to call it. I, it. It seems weird to say like the Kinsellian view of property, but like, you know, Robert Locke's three rules of homesteading, you know, get there first, separate it from nature. Um, it's like make, make first use of it, separate it from nature. And um, oh, what was the third? Uh, mix your labor with it, right? Um, Kinsella has spoken at length and very astutely on this topic, and he's sort of boiled it down to just that first use. He's kind of eliminated what I, I guess the chaff in uh, maybe the Lockean uh, property rules, whereas like the the mixture labor with it sort of implies uh, that labor has some kind of inherent value, and like there's this like ephemeral, you know, mixing your labor as if it was actual property in with real property to sort of link it to you. And uh, so Kinsella has, and correct me if I've got you wrong on any of this, but you've done a, you've been very clarifying on on what homesteading is, how it's done, and things like that. Um, did, do I, I do I, mean, I have? I go ahead. Yeah, it's it's John Locke, not Robert, but um, yeah, a little sorry. typo there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Um, it's um, I mean, I've tried to, and I think I have added some clarity to it, and only because because of Rothbard's. Well, I would say it's a combination of a couple things. Rothbard's radical libertarian perspective, plus his views on contract theory, um, and then Hoppe. And his reliance upon Mises and the emphasis on scarcity as a part of property rights, right? Because of the uh, because of uh, Austrian economics and Mises, um, and because I was trying to sort out this puzzle of intellectual property, it required after years like this is the right way to see what the real error is in intellectual property. And you know, I hate to always harp on that topic, but it, it go it keeps. I mean, so John Locke who was heroic in a way he was trying to John Locke was trying to come up with an argument that there's some private domain protected from, uh, you know, the government's interference. Right. So he was trying to argue against this guy named Robert Filmer and his argument that God gave the earth to Adam and Adam owned it. And so all of, all the kings nowadays basically inherited their title from Adam, so they basically are emissaries of God, owning all people as their as their serfs, right? That's where serfdom came from, right? Feudalism. Um, and Locke was like, "Well, really, God gave it to Adam, but He gave the rest of the earth to humans in common, and therefore people have the right to own their bodies and themselves, and they can go out and homestead things. So when they mix their labor with it, they own their labor because they own themselves because God gave it to them." And so he was coming up with a somewhat convoluted argument to argue for individual rights against the state. So I don't want to be critical, but this was you know three hundred years ago, and yeah, they it's okay to refine ideas. Yeah, I mean, it, that's yeah, what we need was, to be doing. He was more flowery. Yeah, he was flowery. He was metaphorical. And he's even like David Hume later pointed out, uh, this this whole step that you own yourself and therefore you own your labor and therefore you own the things you mix it with is sort of like an unnecessary step or two in the argument. Um, it is true that when you – as Hoppe calls it, when you emborder property, that is when you start using an unowned resource and you put up a border around it that sends a visible signal to the public that, hey, I'm putting up boundaries around this and I own it now. Um, you, you have to use labor, but you, in other words, you have to act. 
but it just means you act. It does. It, you don't have to make the assumption you own your actions to do this. It's just that it's it's necessary to do something to separate this from the state of nature and to to put up a public social signal that okay, now I'm the owner of this. You can avoid this property boundary if you want to live in peace with me, and you go find your own stuff, or you can buy it from me by contract, something like that. So yeah, I think it's and and all this stuff helps clarify so many issues like. The intellectual property issue, you'll hear people say like, well, you should own your inventions and your novels and your musical works because you created them. So they're going back to this labor aspect of Locke's argument where people think of you own yourself, you own your labor, and you own anything you mix your labor with, and therefore you own anything your labor that your labor helps create of value this is sort of the ayn rand line mm -hmm. so they get this whole idea in their head that you own things that you create so they start thinking that property rights come from creation but they don't they never come from creation they only come from finding an unknown thing and starting to use it or basically buying it from a previous owner contract that's the only ways to gain property well, there is a third, and that's rest, rest, restitution. Like if you yeah, if someone yeah. commits a wrong against you, and, and so then you get some of their property, they have to pay you back. But that's you could think of that like a type of contractual transfer. So that's it. I mean, but you never create anything uh, ab initio. All you do is rearrange things and make them more valuable, and you might get more wealth because of that. But it doesn't mean that you have created new property rights. We did a video on, on this channel that I think I'll send you after this. Um called it, it it's kind of cartoony but the monologue behind it is really good it's called why is property and I'd, I'll, I'll probably send it to you after this for those watching along you know search our channel for it it goes through why property exists as kind of like a predecessor discussion to what is property and uh and then the ways property is transferred okay so we have this thing called a contract which i love what you said it was like um uh it was a. Uh, a confluence of wills. It was like a meeting of wills and a contract is sort of like an expression or a, a freezing in time of that moment of uh, connecting wills. I forgot what, I, what my formulation is, but the classical one yeah. law is a meeting of the minds. A meeting okay. of the minds is what the laws, which is one, re, which is one reason, by the way, which I, um, I have a problem with this, this, uh, this, this smart, con uh, not smart contract. Uh, yeah. What's the idea of the Bitcoin smart contracts, right? Yeah. Um, and also, uh, the fine print that we see on, uh, well, we used to call it shrink wrap in the old days when people physically bought software, right? But not just shrink wrap, but now we call it click wrap, right? Um, the fine print and all these things that everyone just scrolls through and hits the checkbox. Um, I mean, wh what if at the bottom of one of these forms, <laughs> it said, uh, oh, and by the way, you agree to pay me half of your income for the rest of your life. Well, you click agree. Um, <laughs> right. And if you have this sort of mechanistic or legalistic, uh, simplistic view of contracts as being, it's, it's almost like <laughs> Protestantism and uh, legal positivism, like this idea that law comes from a sovereign and it's got to be written down. I mean, like these income tax protester nuts who say that it's not illegal to to not pay your income taxes because it's not in the law books. They'll use this term, the law books. And if they ever cite Black's Law Dictionary, you can tell they're they're probably a, a conspiracy nut, right? Because that's all they know about law is what they can look up in Black's Law Dictionary, right? But the point is, 
they think of law as what's written down in a statute by the government, by the by the parliament or by the Congress. Right. And so they think of law this way, too. Um, but law uh, contracts don't have to be written, as I said. It's just an expression of the wills of the parties. It's basically an expression of the will of the of the transferring party. Um, another clarification that I think uh, can be and has has to be made is most people think, OK, you'll hear this argument. You'll hear. Um, Kinsella, you say that you can't own your labor or you can't own your ideas. Yet you can sell them. How can you sell them and sell sale sale is a type of contract, right? So how can you sell them if you don't own them? If you can sell it, it means you own it, right? So you hear this argument all the time, usually in defense of intellectual property or in some other theory, right? Um, the mistake here, I believe, is that people are conflating economic with legal and normative concepts, okay? So in economics, we try to understand and explain human action, why people do things, right? So we think of our fellow human beings as human actors with purposes, just like we have purposes, which means that every action we take is some employment of some means, some scarce resource, some scarce means to achieve certain ends, certain end goals, right? This is how we ca characterize crimes like first degree murder versus manslaughter or negligent homicide. And this is how we characterize we understand our fellow humans, what they're doing. We, we think that they are doing something that's in the in the praxeology, the human action framework. They are using means to achieve some ends, some personal goals they have. They might be evil goals. They might be good goals. The, the means might be evil means. It might be good means. You know, I might use my knife to stab a bad guy. That's probably a good a good use of a means to achieve a good end. I might use a stolen knife to kill an innocent person that's too, I mean, you know, there's a mixture of these things, but we understand other people's actions in terms of, of means and ends. And this is what economics, the goal of economics is, is to understand what people do in the market context, which means is called catalactics, which is a subset of economics uh, aimed at understanding um, things people do aimed at monetary gain, right? In a monetary economy, right? Because not everything we do is monetary, uh, but everything we do is economic. But so in the, the economist point of view, we see people engage in social intercourse, social interaction, social exchange, uh, social cooperation, and which means sometimes people engage in cooperative action, including exchange, which means someone has possession or use of a resource and they give it to the other one for some reason, his own personal reason. It might be a gift. It might be for gratitude it might be out of a sense of obligation it might be in, to induce the other person to give me the other thing so if someone exchanges an apple for someone else's orange that's an exchange okay an economist call that an exchange legally speaking over time the property rights system would start protecting these things because that's what contracts do so you have a legal exchange which the economists see as an economic exchange. You follow me? So you have the same sort of concept and term and parallel activities happen. But sometimes I might give you my property, my resource, not to get title to another resource, like an exchange of two owned objects, like an apple for, for a banana or whatever, 
but I might do it to induce you to uh, to do a service for me. Right. So basically, that's payment for a service. Now, economically, you would still call it an exchange because you're just trying to explain them. Why did this person give the apple up? Why did the other person paint the guy's fence? OK, the reason was each one wanted what the other one had. Right. Or to induce the other one to do something. So economically, the problem is legally then we start saying, well, legally, it's a sale of a service. OK, so then what the. Now, I think that's the mistake. That's the mistake the law made. It's not really the sale of a service because you don't own your service. It's really economically, you can call it a sale of a service, but that's more metaphorical. But legally speaking, it's just a one-way sale of the Apple or whatever is being paid to the service provider. The service provider is not selling you labor. He's just performing something you want him to do, and you're inducing him to do it by your conditional. That's why I said earlier, contracts can be immediate, absolute, unconditional, or they can be future-oriented and conditional. And that's usually what they are. So usually I'll say, I will pay you $1,000 a week as your salary if, if you show up every day and you stock these shelves at Amazon for me or whatever, right? So it's a condition. The condition is, if you show up, you get this money, right? Now, economically, if you want to say that the Amazon worker is selling his labor, you can say that. But legally speaking, and from a libertarian point of view, he's not really selling his labor. He's just performing the action that will trigger the conditional transfer of money to him. And it works out. It works out for everyone. And then you can have more and more and more and more complicated contracts, of course, with security obligations, things like this. Yeah, I, I tell people is, all the time, labor yeah. is not a valid form of property, so it's not something that you can sell. It's uh, we, We're going to make an agreement between us to have a future a transfer of property that you own contingent upon me using my property yes. and in some cases my body property i agree to use my property in a way that you want me to in exchange for a contingent future agreed upon transfer of your property that's what um, a labor contract would be right yes and the important thing about this and the way you just put it is it's a future it's a it's a future transfer of title to a resource um which means it's a transfer of title to a future resource. Okay. Now the thing about future things is they don't exist. Yes. We're getting yeah. into it. This is one of the things you taught me that blew my mind. So I want everybody to listen up. This is really important about contracts. Please go ahead. So the, so the future is uncertain because it doesn't exist yet. And so therefore, if I, if I give you this pen right now, that's one thing because the pen exists. And then if you own it and I don't let you take it from me, I'm stealing your pen. But if I if I give you my future pen in a year, okay, uh, that contract, that contractual title transfer is necessarily conditional. It's conditioned at least upon one thing. That is, well, the future existing in a year and me having a pen in a year. You having the pen in a year, exactly, yeah. Right, if there is no pen, then my failure to give you the pen is not an act of theft because there's nothing that I'm stealing from you, um, which is the problem, in my view, with Rothbard and Walter Block's argument for um, uh, uh, debtor's prison, for example. So, like, so the idea that if you don't pay a if you don't pay a debt, like if you take a loan out from a bank and you owe it in a year, I, say I borrow one thousand dollars now and I owe one thousand one hundred dollars which is say a hundred thousand dollars with 10% interest in one year. 
and in one year I don't pay the repay the eleven hundred dollars to the to the to the lender, to the to the to the creditor to the bank. Um, then I'm stealing from him, and I could, in theory, be subjected to debtor's prison. Now, Rothbard didn't like the implications of that argument, so he tried to avoid it by saying, but that would be disproportional punishment. So theoretically, it's theft, but you can't put a guy in jail because that's disproportionate punishment. So he, he tried to avoid the the uncomfortable implications of his own mistaken application of his own contract view, if I could put it that way. Like Rothbard was a giant, but he even, he, he only went so far and then he, you know. Um, and so I asked Walter Block this. I have a whole podcast where we debated here in this room. He was on my couch and he was over sleeping over one night. And we, I said, let's have a podcast. Let's discuss this. And I never could make progress with Walter, but because um, I said, Walter, if there's no pen to, if there's no future money to steal, what's being stolen? And Walter thought about it. He says, Okay, it's the previous money. I said, you mean I retroactively stole it when 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 you loan me the money, the th the one thousand, not the eleven hundred. When you loan me the one thousand, I was stealing it then because in a year from now I was unable to pay back a similar amount plus interest. I said, but if I was stealing it then, I, but you consented to me using it and taking it to spend on my project because that's why I, I borrowed the money, right? I want to spend the money. That's why you – but I can't spend the money unless I own it 100%. So how could it be conditional then? You know, So the whole thing falls apart. Um, but the reason I bring this up is the conventional view of contract is that contracts are enforceable agreements, as you read from Wikipedia, or in the civil law, they are uh, – uh, they are agreements that give rise to obligations, conventional obligations. So in both cases, when they say enforceable, what they mean is, or an obligation, that you have – if you don't – if you don't comply with the agreed-upon terms of the contract, you're in breach of contract. And when you're in breach of contract, there should be remedies, which is another thing that you read from the Wikipedia page. But – now, theoretically speaking, like if you think about the Rothbard block idea about voluntary slavery contracts or about a debtor's prison, theoretically, the remedy is that you're a thief, right? You're basically a thief because you didn't hand over the property that they own, even though it doesn't exist. Um, and so theoretically, you're you're in breach of someone's rights. It's like it's like you assaulted them, right? Um, so or theoretically let's let's suppose i have a contract to sing at your at your daughter's wet at your daughter's uh, birthday party and i back out of the contract and now the own uh, the other guy sues me and says you breached the contract so you had an obligation to sing you didn't sing theoretically the court should order the deputies to to put a gun to your head and say go sing at the wedding uh, go sing at the birthday party right they should coerce you to comply but the courts say that that's impractical. In almost every contract, even a title transfer, except for real property, for, for land, we can, we're going to make you transfer the land. You have to transfer it because we don't need your assistance to do that. We can just put on the real property records of the county. Okay, we're gonna, the court's going to say that the property did transfer because you agreed to do it earlier. But other than that, the courts don't enforce what they call specific performance. Mm -hmm. So all they do instead is they award a sum of monetary damages because the courts don't want to have the burden of making sure that you went to the party and sang the right way and you weren't surly about it. No one wants that. So even though they say that contracts are binding obligations, 
they never enforce them with what's called specific performance. They only give you an award of monetary damages, which means that all contracts really amount to, even in the legal system, is really a transfer of title to owned resources. Mm-hmm. It's never it's never actually a sale of labor. It's never actually anything like that. Now, the only exception would be like if you sign up for the military and our volunteer army right now, which is not really that voluntary because half the people that sign up probably do it because they're impoverished because the government, uh, you know, uh, makes these people ignorant because of public schooling and then it makes uh, increases poverty and increases unemployment by the business cycle and by regulation and taxes. So I think we have a form of economic conscription even right now in the US. I mean, so, but the point is you sign up to the military and it's so-called voluntary. That's the one job you can't quit. Hmm. Right. You can quit your job at Walmart. I could fire up an employee at Walmart. It's kind of a voluntary mutual relationship. But mm-hmm. if you join the military, you can't quit before your time is up or you'll be court-martialed or put in prison. So but again, that's an exception to the general private law rule, which courts don't. So my point is the courts, the way they act is very in accordance with the Rothbard Evers theory of contract already, which is basically it really always amounts to a transfer of title to uh, to scarce resources. Which, let, me, let me try and let say me, it. On, let me mention, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Let me just uh, b- b- write a note down. I'll bring this up in a second. One, one uh, more thing I want to mention in a second. OK, I, I wanted to just try and uh, say it all in my own words and see if you um, agree with yeah. it. So um, the way I've described contracts before are a promise to generally like a labor contract would be to use your resources in a way that, you, that the other person wants you to in exchange for um, the change of ownership in some form of property, be it an asset or money or something like that at a future date. And you, you generally upon completion of whatever labor it is. And um, the, the, if if the asset that was promised to be exchanged the uh, doesn't exist at the future date and it wasn't in the contract how you were going to agree to handle that eventuality then it's sort of like okay well the agreement just sort of fizzled out or it's just kind of nulled out yes you may have used your property in the way you agreed but the property that uh, they agreed to transfer to you they didn't they didn't own anymore at that point in time so without any kind of a priori or, you know, some sort of like uh, agreed on community standards of uh, contract resolution without any of that being agreed to beforehand, then you don't have any kind of restitute or um, what's the word? There's no uh, penalty for recourse. recourse, recourse, Thank you for violating that kind of contract, which is the thing that I, I see people not think about all the time. If you want to have uh, recourse for a contract breach, then you got to put it in the contract. It's at least from a libertarian contract perspective, it like uh, penalties. So if you, um, if you uh, agree to pay somebody for a service, they complete the service and you have the property at the time uh, of the agreed upon ownership transfer and don't give it to them, the property is already automatically owned by that person. You're just in sort of invalid yes. uh, theft possession of it. The long, you know, by holding it onto someone else's property against their consent, you're a thief, um, right? Well, I don't think it'd be, it wouldn't be, uh, uh, I think the word would be conversion, right? If, but I don't mm. think it would be theft or conversion or trespass uh, unless you refuse to turn it over uh, right. because it's right. understood that, if the contract is set up where the 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 previous owner is going to be in possession of it until the new owner gets it, it's that's like a, a licensed temporary mm-hmm. custodial 
relationship or something. But no, I actually don't agree with, uh, I don't think I agree with what you just said about, um, good. Um, having no consequences. Um, okay. and I would also be a little bit careful about the word promise and only because the conventional view of co contracts is, is that it's binding promises. I, in a sense, just like we libertarians distinguish morality from legality, uh, like everything you have the right to do isn't always moral and everything that's immoral to do is shouldn't always be illegal. Right. Um, um, in a way promises have nothing to do with contracts and vice versa. Um, however, the, the, the stickler sort of detail and the obsession over that word, like I think it led Rothbard a little bit astray. This is why he, he, um, so Rothbard would say that, a promise is not the basis of contract, which I agree with. A promise is just you telling someone what you intend to do. Um, like, I promise I'm going to be faithful to you. I promise I'm going to be a good daddy to you, whatever. Um, uh, I promise I'm going to quit watching porn, whatever, you know. Uh, it's a promise. It really has nothing to do with transfers of title or even a legal binding obligation. But people, usually when you make an actual contract, sometimes people use the word promise to explain their intentions. And I see no problem with that. Like if I say, I promise to give you a thousand dollars in a year. Okay. It's not a binding obligation or it's not a valid contract because promises are enforceable. It's a valid contract because the word promise was meant to convey the abandonment of title to that resource in a year. You follow me? Um, and just as I said earlier, contracts don't have to be verbal or, or written or even verbal um or even oral um contracts still require a level of communication so they require a type of something you can call language right it has to be some kind of intelligent two intelligent beings understanding each other that's what meeting of the minds comes about right um and so language is always to some degree imprecise and it's also always necessarily informed by custom and default conditions okay so in the law this is called um uh suppletive s-u-p-p-l-e-t-i-v suppletive terms or gap filler terms so the idea is that when you say something when you communicate your understanding uh so this i'm getting to the point of implicit implicit conditions of contracts so i think in the like in the loan contract we talked about i don't think that the that the creditor would be um uh, out of luck uh, on the day of the due date if the debtor is penniless because I think that if they had bothered to sit down and discuss that at the day of the loan, they would have both agreed that, and if you can't pay me $1,100 on the due date, then you have to pay me $1,100 plus interest going forward as soon as you come into possession of it, right? And if people don't specify every single detail in their contract, and by the way, they never can because the world is uncertain. And even if you have a thousand page contract, you almost might leave something out. And in those cases, all you can do is turn to a, a tribunal that can settle this thing. And then they will always turn to custom community understanding, reasonable interpretations, etc. And in the end, what they will say is they will make a decision, right? The court will that the court that both parties in a gray area 
remember, it's a gray area that they caused. They caused it by they didn't fail to – because they failed to put – Clause 17.17 in the contract specifying this thing. So they caused this gray area to arise, and they forced some third party to have to decide this thing in a sea of kind of uncertainty. And all you can do is do your best to do justice. But the point is, whichever way the court decides, number one, neither side can really complain that much because they had the chance to hash it out in detail ahead of time, and they didn't think it was worth it. Right to hire the lawyers to to go into umpteen detail, they took the chance that there might be a little gray area, and when that happens, we're going to have to settle this, and one of us might lose. Mm -hmm. And number two, from that moment forward, the community learns. Ah, you see what happened here, and if it, if the court decides the wrong way, according to the, the the common view, people will start putting that in their contracts. Like for example, I think we're about to see this right now. With this coronavirus thing, you have tons of hotels, cruise ships, airlines, uh, uh, venue cancellations, and I guarantee in some of those cases, the people that put their deposit down won't get their deposit back, but they want it back. And in the other half of the cases, the hotel is going to insist that they pay the remainder that they owed, and they're, they're going to have a dispute about whether or not a, a coronavirus was an act of God or force majeure that should break the contract or whether it's not and there's going to be oh and insurance companies are going to be hit with all kinds of claims right now right and they're going to try to get out of it and so i guarantee that right now the lawyers for insurance companies and hotels and they're always they're already revising contracts going forward with some kind of coronavirus uh clause now which way they're going to go i don't know but these things are going to start being specified and they're going to be specified because there's going to be squabbles and disputes over the the aftermath of this um but yeah so the, so i think that there's nothing wrong with implicit uh or even tacit obligations or tacit contracts or implicit because and the reason is because language is always based upon custom and and context and that is always going to play a role so you know if you and i I kind of hard disagree yeah. with you on this implicit thing. So this mm -hmm. might be a really good discussion. I think uh, like that's that's um, a social contract. Like that's just uh, that's enforcing yeah. rules that people didn't consent to. And that's uh, unlibertarian uh, at right. it, on its face. Right. Uh, but and let me let me get you to respond to that as well as um, I don't think we ever got your definition of a contract. Let me give you mine really quick in one sentence. It's. Uh, a communication of of consent uh, to the use of or transfer of property. That would be like my one sentence version of what a contract is. I like that. I, I like that. I think that's good. I like that. Because it, it, it is a communication. Without communication, you yep. have nothing. Um, it's all about consent because, I mean, that's what, I mean, this is like um, the... Uh, the essence of a contract. It's a communication. It's a consent. And it's either for the use of or transfer of ownership, the use of property or transfer. Or of the, be, go ahead. Or you could say it's, it's a consensual, uh, it's a consensual temporary or, or permanent complete or partial transfer of use rights over a resource owned by the, by that person so but it's the same idea i think that's basically what a contract is yes temp or permanent what was the second part i want to write this down because this is good stuff well i was say temporary or permanent so it uh -huh. could be like a lease or, or or a loan or it could be 
total sale. Uh, it could be a, a complete or partial. So you and I could have a co-ownership arrangement over 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 like a house or something. Um, okay. Or yep. maybe you have the right to live in it and I have the right to have it when you die, something like that. Or, you know, covenants right? for HOAs and, and things like that. Yeah. Yep. Home, homeowners and, and, and restrictive covenants and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and, and, um, and, and by the way, I think this view of contract also can explain the entire restrictive covenant issue and also things like uh, uh, trusts and, how, and cor- even corporations, how you can set up a corporation that can last forever. Once you have this kind of solid Austrian libertarian property rooted based view of contracts, then I think all these other issues, which sort of nags. And, and by the way, I've heard your argument before about implicit. I know it bugs a lot of libertarians because they think that you're opening the door to the um, to the uh, to the social contract. Um, and one reason I think that you think that is because you said it's you're agreeing to rules, but you notice that under our theory of contract, it's not about a binding promise, right? It's not a binding promise. It's just a specification of who owns a resource. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. always have to have that problem. That's the whole purpose of property. We always have that, that issue of what rules do we have that determine who owns a resource? Mm-hmm. So that's why you can think of contract as a subset of property rights, because again, property is who owns a resource. It's in dispute. We ask who had it first and was there a contract? Who used it first okay, and but, was it transferred after? Right. That's that's literally all the contract is. That's is all there is. Determining who has the highest claim on a piece of property. Right. Okay. Right. Better. Better. And, and I've I've actually thought like you could summarize all of libertarianism with the two words "better title," which is sort of a, a legal term. Better title. Who has better title? Um, this is another thing. Some libertarians they 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 fight this Rothbardian, Lockean, proprietarian perspective because they'll say things like, "Well." You could never, you could never know who owns property absolutely because there was wars five hundred years ago and someone stole this land from someone else. It's like property is not about proving absolute title to something back to the days of Adam. It's only about better title. It's only about relative title. It's only about knowing who has a better claim to the resource with respect to anyone who could possibly other dispute it or even the rest of the world, which is all other living human beings. Right. And if, if you and I are disputing this resource and this is what in the law, the way the law does it, I think it's the right procedure. You don't trace it back to Adam. You trace it back to a, what we call a common ancestor, a common ancestor in title. So like if two guys have a, they both claim this piece of property and we both trace our title back through some transfers Back to some one guy named Joseph, you know, 175 years ago in Pennsylvania. Now, we know that from our point of view, Joseph owned it. It doesn't matter if Joseph stole it from someone else because we're the only two fighting over it. Then you'd follow what Joseph did with it after that. And if, if there's a split, then one of those transfers is invalid. Like he, he did it. He gave it. He gave it to C after he gave it to B. So C's title was invalid, and so that chain is invalid. So that's how the law works, and that's the only practical way it ever could work. But Mm -hmm. the point is, and Rothbard talks about this too in a sort of Rothbardian libertarian way um, about how, like, just because we say that this property is not um, free of original sin, let's say, right? It's like Mm -hmm. somewhere in the chain of title, seven hundred years ago, it was stolen from some guy. 
Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that your current title is invalid because anyone who wants to take it from you has to say they have a better title than you. Right. Right. And if it was tainted 700 years ago, that doesn't help them either. Anyway. Yeah. They would have to have some kind of a higher claim than the owner that had it stolen from them to, to, now, to win in I, that. Th- now, the term you were looking for earlier is called liquidated damages. Like if you, if you want to have a, a, a so-called penalties clause. Yeah. Um, so and I think most people would tend to do that. And, and an arbitration like, clause, right? Like an agreement to who is going to uh, arbitrate, like an agreement in the contract should be uh, who is going, what framework of rules or, or uh, context or subjective societal norms will be uh, standing in uh, judicial or in uh, dispute resolution over this right. contract should there be a problem, right? Well, but le- so, but let's say that I live in a community that's a, a pretty advanced libertarian society and everyone pretty much respects property rights and th- there's a nice justice system that's private. And I buy your cow for a hundred dollars. Um, you know, we might not want to, we might just want to shake over it because we know that in other similar disputes, they, people always use arbitration and they they tend to have these default rules that they apply mm-hmm. uh the default rules or the supplementary rules or the gap fillers that i mentioned earlier which you could call the implicit conditions but it's not really implicit it's just we're assuming that that's what the legal system would do right so we might not bother to write up a contract because we know that we're just writing up something that's going to be the case anyway. Just like lots of people now get married and they don't bother to have a prenuptial agreement because the prenuptial agreement they would write would tend to be roughly the same as the state's default divorce and marriage laws already, right? People that don't want that, they write up a prenuptial, right? So if, you, if you're confident that the customary and the default rules that will be applied are what you want anyway, you might not go through the hassle of of, of writing it all down because it's just a waste, right? It, only if you want to vary things. Um, I think like in Louisiana, there's something called a covenant marriage that was enacted about 15, 15 or so years ago, which allows you to choose like marriage plus when you get married. And if you choose that, it makes it extremely difficult to get divorced. Mm. Like, you know, you can't just have at a no fault divorce. You have to, go through some kind of criteria, but some people opt into that. Not many, but you can, right? So defaults, I think, are necessary in the law. Um, The other thing I was going to mention a little while back is this view of contract does imply something I think is significant for the law, which is that there's no such thing as a breach of contract. Um, It's impossible to breach contract. So right now, because we think of contracts as binding promises or binding obligations, if you don't comply with your promised obligation or your promised activity, then you're in so-called breach, and then you owe damages to the other party, some remedy, usually a payment of money, which, as I said, could have just been stated as, if I do this, then I pay you this much money. But that's not a breach of anything. It's just a conditional transfer of title to property, mm-hmm. right? Now, there is – what's interesting is in the – like in the Chicago – uh, kind of, you know, the the free market literature on contracts, they have this idea of it's called efficient breach of contract, which means that um, um, we shouldn't have p- 
penalties for breaching contract. You should only have to pay the damages that you cause the other person so that if you need to economically breach a contract, you should be free to do so because it might be better for the economy. So there's sort of a, a roundabout free market way of getting at what I think would be the Rothbardian way, which would be there's no such thing as breach of contract at all. It's just contracts are not obligations. So you can't, there's nothing to breach. It's just a set of, it's a set of conditional title transfers. And if you don't perform the action that the other party hoped you would, it triggers a set of payments of damages. You know, like if, if you show up and sing at my kid's birthday party, then I transfer $1,000 payment to you. If you fail to show up, you have to pay me $500 in damages. That would be a liquidated penalty, a liquidated uh, damages clause, but it wouldn't even really be damages. It would just be a transfer of title to $500 just to mm -hmm. incentivize them. Although the reality is you don't really need to incentivize service workers to perform their obligations because they have a reputation issue to worry about, right? If they get known in the community as someone who doesn't show up and do what they promised they would do, they're not going to get business anyway. So a lot of this is, is academic in a, in a sense. I, I, before we, uh, I want to make sure, did we actually hear your definition of a contract? Because I want to make sure we did. Well, I, well, I liked, I liked yours. Uh, and then I, I said you could slightly formulate it, alter, you oh. could slightly uh, alter so, it by saying that, yeah, a contract would be a consensual. Uh, communication of consent to property use or the temporary or permanent complete or partial transfer well, of ownership is what my, what I, I wrote down. I, I wouldn't, I, I would, the thing is, I wouldn't call the contract a communication. The contract is communicated, but the contract would be a consensual transfer of title. That's what it is. So a contract would be a consensual, comma, communicated transfer of title to a, an owned resource. And where, where that transfer could be temporary or permanent, partial or complete. Nice. All right. Cool. I like it. So we have a and lot I, of. By uh, the way, the, go ahead. Let me let me let me mention one other thing. The one other major uh, theorist on this issue is is Randy Barnett, who's a a well known uh, libertarian um, uh, law professor, and he's written a lot of stuff. He calls it a consent theory of contract, and it's really good. And it's really heavy, really deep, very legalistic. Um, it's not quite along the same lines of the Rothbard approach. Uh, it's more trying to reform the legal view of contracts as obligations. Uh, but it's, there's a lot of good stuff in his, his stuff there. It's called it's Randy Barnett's a consent. Yeah, that's him. Uh, a consent theory of contract. Um, and he's brilliant. Um, but uh, I think the best, the best approach is this Rothbard Evers uh, propertarian approach. So we've got uh, quite a few questions in the comments. Uh, if if you were waiting to say something, I, I remember you saying you wrote something down you wanted to bring up. Go ahead while I kind of sift through the comments and queue up some questions. Uh, if not, no, I can just go ahead and start. On, that was a thing on breach. That was a thing on breach. I already said it. I'm okay, fine. got it. Matthew Sands asks, why does labor need to be property for you to sell it? You can sell your labor because you own it. It doesn't need to be property to be yours. You own your actions too. They're not property. Uh, my first thought on that is there's some contradictions in language there. It doesn't need to be property to be yours is uh, sort of self-contradictory. If something is yours, it is your property. So necessarily it has to be yours. It has to be property. Uh, what do you have to say on that, uh, Stefan? Yeah, there, there's um, 
I, I've got it. I can send it to you later. I forgot the name of the, it's one of the, one of the uh, Austrian or classical liberal guys like Mencken or someone like that. He said something like, uh, so th this use of possess so language is ambiguous and it can lead to equivocation, uh, right? So when we, like the word yours has different meanings, right? Uh, I mean, this is my country. That's my wife, right? It's my life. It's my appraisement of this movie. It's my table. It's my car. So the word my or your or possessives, but they don't always imply legal ownership. Um, uh, so I, I think that, again, this is why I tried to distinguish economic versus legal concepts. When you say you sell your labor from an economic point of view, that's just a way of describing um, what happened in the transaction, which was that someone transferred their money to you to induce you to perform an action they wanted you to perform. And you perform the action to trigger the conditional transfer of title to you of the money. So really a labor contract or labor uh, sale is really a one-way title transfer. It's There's only one thing that's being transferred and that is the title to the money. Which it's is fine. It's a two-way title transfer. Yeah, like, it's fine. Yeah, it's that's fine. a common misconception is that you have to have a two-way, like there has to be consideration or something, I think is the language. Like you have to have property going in both ways for it to be a valid con uh, contract. I think that's uh, superfluous, right? That's a good point. I'm actually not sure if consideration has to be uh, an owned resource or if consideration could be a service. I don't know the answer to that, but... Um, uh, but but that 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 is rooted in the classical idea that contract has to be in exchange mm -hmm. legally, right? But a gift is a contract. Valid. Yeah. I mean, according to the civil law, you can have a gift. It's called a don a don a donation, right? Or, or it's, a, it's 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 a gift. Um, and I think that's just as valid as the way the common law gets out of that is they say, well, if you promise to give someone a resource and they rely on it then you can't go back because that would be harming them. So they have this convoluted way of trying to get out of their, their hampered rules in the first place. But yeah, I think the solution is, look, there's two types of contracts. You can give someone something as a gift. You can give it based upon a condition. And that condition can either be the reception of title to another thing, or it can be you're performing a service. They're, they're all fine legally. From a libertarian point of view, they're all fine legally. Agreed. Jim Jesus donated two dollars. He says having having Kinsella on your show is a limited liability. I don't know what that means, but let's go with it. Uh, Liberty after dark. It doesn't have to be theft, though. If the terms of the contract are violated, the associated penalties would be dealt anyways. Um, I think that. So I think that's. I, I think I know what he's getting at there. Um, okay. So uh, technically, I would say it's impossible to violate the terms of a contract. It's just simply that. If you if you perform an action that triggers some title transfer in the contract, that's what happens. And that could mm -hmm. be if you if you if you don't perform the actions that we wanted you to perform, then you have to pay us some kind of money. And that's yeah, that's a, that's a you can call it a penalty. And that's what the the problem with calling it a penalty is if the law if the courts call it a penalty, they won't enforce it because they say that's the job of the criminal system is to enforce penalties. That's the problem with liquidated damages clauses. If they're too high, the courts won't enforce them because they say it's a penalty. And that's not the job of the civil courts or of private parties and contracts. That's the job of the criminal system. So you don't want it to be characterized as, as, as 
as punitive or as a penalty. But from our point of view as businessmen or whatever, yeah, we could say, yeah, you're going to have a penalty if you don't do this. So that's why you're going to do it. Right. Uh, Debo asks, uh, is the, oh, actually, let's see. Uh, Jim Jesus says, promise to stop watching porn. Well, this video will get banned from Pornhub now. Uh, out of all the platforms we publish to, Pornhub has taken down more videos than any other. Um, for reasons we can get into at another time. Uh, Debo says, is the law a contract? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, what, what is it if not a, a, a unilateral... Uh, by fiat contract, right? Like, which is to say invalid, well, right? So, so some some people like what well, they, they call them contractarians. Uh, oh, I'm forgetting the name. I can't think Raz maybe. Um, forget. There's a, a more, it's, it's a famous philosophy book called Morals by Agreement. Um, and even like in Hoppe's theory, he talks about people agreeing to respect each other's rights. Now, I think that when he used the word agreeing, he's not using it. To mean contract, I think he's using it to mean um, the willingness of people to respect each other's rights. Like we're both we're both recognizing that each of us has the right to control our bodies and any other resources that we get by valid means, right? Um, so I think that property is the basis of contract, not the other way around. So I don't think you build law on contract. Uh, and by law, I mean the basic law, the basic libertarian non-aggression principle and related rights. Um, but I do think that as a matter of uh, as a matter of fact, in in any private in any private society, the bulk of the law, what we think of now as law, would be private law, and the bulk of that would be that stuff developed by convention and custom and by contracts. A lot of it would be contracts, insurance company contracts, right, or covenants. Um, I mean, I think actually a, a large part of of the kind of background public slash private law would be dominated by the terms and clauses that insurance companies would insist upon to cover people, and people would want insurance coverage to be accepted into polite society and to do deals with people and to live in a certain community, all those kinds of things. So these like sort of like little almost mini treaties between between insurance companies and 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 protection agencies and between their customers would over time would fill in the borders of what we now think of as a private law so they wouldn't really be legislated but they would be the result of written agreements and uh yeah so i see that process is probably what could and would happen you said something just now that makes me want to go through my conception of what rights are, um, because it, right. it, it seems like we it seems like rights are uh, a contract. So my let me just lay it out. Give me give me a couple minutes to rant through it. So um, I say that rights are a mutual reciprocal understanding between sentient beings. Uh, and every word of that sort of means something. Right. So um, a mutual reciprocal understanding means means that rights are an agreement between people that has to be reciprocated. So if uh, if property being one of the rights, let's say, uh, if if we have to agree to this thing called property and, and reciprocate it amongst each other for it to even be operative in the world, like without us respecting each other's rights, property rights, then property doesn't really exist. It sort of ceases to exist because it's just uh, a conceptualization that we hold in our minds about 
how we interact and resolve conflicts and prevent conflict uh, conflicts to scarce resources. So it seems like an agreement, some form of contract sort of uh, predis- uh, precedes property existing, like f- for us to interact around a system of property rules and to agree on first use as a, as a, as a premise for establishing uh, highest claim of ownership. Well, that's right. a, that's sort of an agreement, right? Right. That's why I said, and I think uh, the name of the guy is, I think, David Gauthier. Uh, I think that's who wrote Morals by Agreement. And there's other contractarian thinkers, too. Um, uh, that's why I said I think there's a difference between the, the word agreement and the word contract. So, again, you and I talked about what's the right way to define contract, but it basically comes down to the owner of a resource consenting to its basically to its alienation from him, right? Giving the use over to someone else, right? Either permanent or temporary or whatever. And mm-hmm. tradition typ- typically it's, it's permanent. It could be conditional, but it's permanent once it happens. Like you, you give this to someone else, um, which is, by the way, one reason I kind of disagree with some of my fellow IP haters who immediately they'll jump on the idea of like the seller of a book retaining some rights in the book because once you sell the book, you have to sell all of the book. Like that's not really exactly right and that's not really the problem of contract because contract doesn't come i mean sorry copyright doesn't come from contract in the first place so they're almost trying to say you couldn't have co-ownership rights and things but but you can right you can have Mm co-ownership like a husband and wife co-own their house together uh you know avis and you in a sense co-own the car for that day Mm-hmm. You have the right to use it. They have the right to get it back. And yeah, I, I own my house, own. but I did not purchase the rights to build a hundred foot towel fence around it because of my HOA restrictions. Yeah. Yeah. So your neighbors own a partial limited con- Con- control contractual right. Yeah. So, but that's a, that's a division of rights and that's a co-ownership situation. Mm-hmm. And so theoretically, yeah, if I sell you a book, I could, as the publisher or the author of the book, I could, I could keep the right to copy, which, which just means that as between you and me, you're the buyer of the book. Uh, we have a contract where if you copy the book, you have to pay me some kind of money. Now, I don't think those contracts are, are practical. I don't think anyone would ever, ever, ever agree to them. Um, and really they, hard they, to they enforce that. Stop. Yeah. That's, it'd be impossible to enforce. And we're talking a five, $10 book. Who's going to do that. And And then not only that, it wouldn't bind third parties. So the ideas can still get out there and then the copyright doesn't form. So that whole argument is, is flawed, but, um, but I think that um, the nature of rights. So rights, number one, if you think of Crusoe alone on his Island, he has no rights because there's no other people. There's no one that can violate his rights. He still needs to use resources to survive, but he has no rights when there's other people around we might say he has rights. So we know that rights have to have a social aspect, like their rights Mm -hmm. against other people. And they also have something to do with violence, physical conflict or violence, because there's no way to have a conflict unless we have a clash. And the only way to have a clash is over physical things in the world that we might want to use at the same time. Right. So rights have to, the definition or the concept of rights has to tie into both of those things. Um, so your earlier definition is is too broad because you just said it's some mutual understanding or something. But I mean, you that that would that would maybe apply to language too or something. So it would have to be narrowed down a little bit. That's a difficult issue. Um, but I do think that 
the way I think about it is uh, like uh, Ayn Rand was right that all rights are human or individual rights, right? And all individual rights are human rights because only humans have rights. And as Rothbard said, all human rights are property rights because that's what rights are. They're, they're rights to the exclusive, basically the right to exclude someone from, from the use of a resource. Um, further than that, it would take us far afield, but I, how they arise and how we justify them, I'm not strongly opposed to having a contract carrying base, but I think they're talking more about the fact of agreement on people and respect among people for each other's status as rights bearers. But contracts that we've been talking about here is more of a subset of property rights because it's, again, it's how you use something that you have a property right to. Uh, Liberty After Dark says, this is like a square can be a rectangle, but a rectangle isn't a square. A contract is an agreement, but an agreement isn't always a contract. I mean, you can be in agreement with people on, you know, what song is Metallica's best song. That doesn't mean any property is being used or well, transferred, right? And th this is an important point. I, I forgot. I wanted to mention this earlier. Earlier, I was trying to quibble over oral versus verbal and all that because th there are differences, right? Um, and even the definition you read, which seemed fairly precise on Wikipedia, said that a contract is like a, uh, a legally binding agreement. So it's a subset of agreements. It's a type of agreement. So not all agreements are contracts. That is true. Um, and just the examples you gave wouldn't be a contractual agreement. It wouldn't be a contract at all. There would just be an agreement. We both agree that something is true. We agree that something is the case. Yep. Means okay. we have the same opinion. Uh, last call for questions in the comments. Um, now, the last thing I have on my notes that I wanted to go over with you, and we've already kind of talked about some of these, but what are contracts not and common misconceptions of contracts? We've already kind of gone through a couple of misconceptions, but do you have any others that kind of pop out, especially I know you have these conversations with libertarians all the time. What are maybe the most common misconceptions about libertarian contracts that you can think of? I think other than what we talked about, I think that's about it. I mean, the idea that they have to be written, they don't have to be written. Um, uh, I think, again, the idea that we talked about, about implicit contracts are inherently um, flawed and give rise to the uh, to the social contract idea. Uh, and by the way, I hate the social contract idea as much as you do. Although there's a grain of, you know, there's a slight grain of truth to it in the sense that civilized people do tend to agree on a certain background set of of norms about our rights. But, you know, not things you have to do, not positive obligations. I think that's, that may be the difference, but no, I can't think of any other major. Well, I think the major misconception is the same one the lawyers make and the legal profession makes, which is thinking of contracts as a binding promise. Mm. Just stop thinking of it as a binding promise, but think of it as just the exercise of an owner over his resource about who he wants to transfer it to. That's what they are. I, I know Block, you know, speaks in, in favor of um, implicit contracts. You know, you are, I think the example he uses is you go into a restaurant and you order food and they serve the food and you eat the food. And then on the way out, you pay for the food. And at no point in that story was a contract signed uh, where you, you know, agreed. I mean, maybe look, look, if you look at the menu and see the price next to the, the food item, I guess that could be considered, you know, an, an acknowledgement or an agreement um, explicitly. Right. Uh, but let's say you just walk in and don't look at a menu and, you know, just say, hey, I would like some 
uh, steak and they bring you a steak and you know price and compensation was never mentioned what are your what are your thoughts on implicit contracts from that angle i i think it, it isn't and i i don't think it's that difficult to actually just make the contracts explicit and so i don't really see it as a as i don't really i don't really see holding the position that implicit contracts are just not a thing um it's dangerous to make assumptions uh in contracts and and uh, you know it makes an ass out of you and me and it's not necessary and it would be real easy just to have you know people walking in your restaurant hey uh make sure you look at the menu because you know if you order food we're gonna expect you to pay for it you know, like that's that's not a big deal right I, again i well i think that you're probably a little bit more worried than this than you need to be because we have a status legal system okay uh which i understand but in a private legal system i think this the concern would be far less uh there's far less danger that someone's going to come up with a crazy implicit term just like i said earlier i don't think even if you have an explicit term in a in a fine in the fine print that you sell your baby or you sell your your salary uh, you you transfer your salary for the rest of your life you know just because I, you bought this one software package from from microsoft or whatever um that wouldn't be binding and by the same token anyone who asked you to pay a million dollars for the stake when you didn't agree to it they're they're just not going to be successful and if they ever are then customs would change quickly so to prevent that problem from happening so these these problems are are basically self self-correcting i think there's like a negative a good negative feedback effect that happens and customs when they're sufficient people rely upon them and when they turn out to to give unpredictable results or or very costly results then people will take the extra costs and steps necessary uh to figure it out but you know the point the, the point is you think it's not that hard to do an explicit contract but sometimes people don't do it so if i walk into the restaurant and there's no menu and i just say let me have a steak and they serve me a steak and then the guy presents me for a one thousand dollar check and i refuse to pay it now there's a lawsuit so then we have a property dispute the question is who owns the one thousand dollars in my account is it me or is it the restaurant and the and the the legal tribunal whatever you whatever system you choose has to come up with an answer so the answer can't be well you should have had a contract why not why the can't that be the be, answer the answer is going to be someone like when What's you that? order the food when they order the food they could just you know like give you a box to check or something yeah that's what you want oh there's they, the they, price they could they like, could they could but what if they didn't i mean if what if you have a situation where there's no menu buyer beware you, you, you walk in seller beware well, right okay. same thing right well i don't know but that's the point which one is it so those are the default but so both beware. Tour, which was but humans beware well, they, they both <laughs> they they both have to beware because they're both taking the chance that they could lose in a in a lawsuit because they, they didn't take the time to work it out mm -hmm. so i agree with you but you can't just say buyer beware because what, what maybe it's seller beware i mean maybe the seller should should insist on on having their their customer you know I remember when I when I went to Hungary one time, when, right after the wall fell on a, on a trip, and I went to a restaurant with my buddy. We we walked in and we couldn't even speak the language. And the lady said, "You want food?" We said, "Yeah." So she brought us food, like that's what we ordered food <laughs> because we, I couldn't explain it. <laughs> and, and like, and we'll pay price. You bring us food and we pay price. <laughs> yeah, it worked out. 
where where do you draw the line though with when you were talking about like you know you you agree to use a piece of software and suddenly you lose uh, custody of your child right where like where's the line though in in uh, other things in that agreement that you uh, you definitely take positive action to definitely you know communicate your assent and agreement and consent to that to that contract uh, and all parts of it right like how do you it seems very subjective well, what you just introduced there right. It's it, it can be difficult. This is partly what lawyers do and partly uh, uh, what courts do. Um, but it goes back to something you said earlier, which is something I've emphasized too, which is true. The a written contract should be looked at only as as evidence of the actual underlying mm. contractual gr- agreement, right? So, and the. Uh, Again, if you don't think of contracts as a piece of paper that people wrote things down on, like you don't, you understand that contracts don't have to be written, then even if they are written, it doesn't mean that that's the actual meeting of the minds, the deal. Like it's it's maybe presumptive evidence, and maybe it's ninety nine percent of the time accurate, uh, but in some cases it's going to be so egregious that you realize that the other party really didn't intend for this to happen. So then it becomes a factual question, and that's the job of courts is to do fact finding, like to ask questions of those sides and you know so the contract think that this go ahead yeah no uh, the contract is just evidence very powerful evidence it's sort of like a confession if someone signs a confession they committed a murder does that mean that they really committed the murder not always i like the distinction between intent and consent and what's actually written in the contract because it, it is important that's a good common misconception like it's just evidence of some level of agreement right um but i mean maybe, that's maybe the whole the point other, like may- like if, if you put your signature on a contract that says you transfer custody of a kid like i guess you would have to also as part of that contract agree to an arbiter like uh, you would both have to consent to this arbiter making that inter- that subjective interpretation of what is a, an unreasonable um, term of the contract, you know, like, oh, he was just trying to use Microsoft Word, man. He wasn't trying to give you his kid. That's dumb. Like, why did you even put it in there? Like, you would have to agree to that arbitration, right? Yeah, exactly. And if that was a custom that you could assume that's going to happen, but if not, you'd have an arbitration clause. And then I think Microsoft would know that if we go to arbitration, we're, we're, we're hosed because (laughs) the the jurors or whatever that they're going to say, come on, come on. They, you know, the guy didn't mean to give you his kid or, um, I mean, look, I, 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 my wife and I were married and we have powers of attorney for each other, statutory Texas powers of attorney. And we just sold some property and she was out of town and you know, the closing company insisted that we get another power of attorney for this specific transaction, even though legally ah. the other one's fine. Because, you know, when certain things are high stakes, people don't take chances and they amp up the legal coverage when they think they need to. Uh, this is a natural negative feedback from bad outcomes that have happened in the past and people learn from these things. And the law progresses. That's one reason I think, I mean, I, I don't say I love lawyers any more than the average person who makes fun of lawyers, but I tend to think that in a private society, we might have more lawyers, not not drug defense lawyers and prosecutors and people like that and antitrust lawyers and IP lawyers, they would go away. But private law lawyers, there might be more of them because people would be richer and they would have bigger deals and they would have more spare money set aside 
to afford to hire a lawyer to just paper over every tiny, fine, fine detail of this contract. So maybe there'd be more lawyers used because we could afford them and the deals would be more and more complex and more in need of, of legal fine tuning. So I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. There'd be more lawyers and I would hope there would be more lawyers because we need to drive the price down right now. They have a, a government backed monopoly on the law license and, and there's a restricted supply of lawyers, right? So um, that's, True. that's one of the reasons True. why they're so damn expensive and it's so hard to get good representations because there's, yeah, the same thing with doctors. Uh, there's a, there's a big restriction in that supply as well. All right, sir, this has been an amazing conversation. Thanks for hanging out and going through, uh, the, is there anything that we missed with contracts? I think we pretty much covered it well enough for this episode. We did a pretty good job. Hell yeah, good we job. did. <laughs> Hell yeah. So uh, let's, where can people find your work? Where do you, where would you like to send people uh, to find more of Kinsella? Uh, StephanKinsella.com. And if you go to slash LLW, that's the notes for my forthcoming libertarian book. And I've got a chapter online already on uh, my contract theory, which is based upon Rothbard and Evers. So I've got a couple of good articles on contract theory that go into the background of all this stuff that Excellent. we talked about today. All right. Well, thanks again, sir, for coming on and uh, hope to see you soon. Maybe we'll get you an Anarchast soon uh, and we'll, we'll go through some other cool topic but uh everybody thanks for watching thanks for the super chats peaceful easy feeling jim jesus you guys are amazing thank you so much and we will see you next time peace out